Okay, while we are looking, uh, waiting for this to come back onto the screen, let's just do a quick recap of what we did this morning. The first question was, uh, is there a God in existence? How will I know? And we decided that uh, the usual way to look at it is is to have two columns of argument. One mine and one yours, and that won't work, and so, here we go. And so we decided to do what we had described as the pan process, in which you had four columns of argument because of the two options. And the two options were, there is a God in existence, there is no God in existence. For the first option, what are the points for it, and what are the points against the other side? And then we go to the next option, what are the points for it, and what's the point against it? And with those four columns, we realize that there's a very good reason. It's a reasonable decision you can make that there is something that is supernatural and by sheer logic of our own existence and the way we apply that existence, if there's another existence beyond us, is that that cannot be just an inanimate power. It had to be a power that has a personality, mind, heart, think, talk. The next question we had was, um, are all those statements out there only relatively true? It's called relativism. You scrutinize that. In my book, I've looked at it about 12 or 14 different ways, and we looked at three, and actually it does not stand to scrutiny, logical examination. So that was out. With that form of truth out, we went to the traditional form of truth. And in the traditional form of truth, we found another question there. The traditional meaning those uh, claims that were in written codes that have come down to us. Is it true that all of them, the different ones, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, Sikhism, Jainism, are they just different paths to the same final goal? And when we looked at the writings themselves, none of them acknowledged that. In fact, each of the major religions said they were the only way. And there was no question about it. But each of them were claiming to be the only way. And so we looked at the options. All are correct. That's absurd and illogical. All are wrong. I couldn't say that because I didn't know what was right. That left me with just one option. Somewhere out there, among the many claims that we have out there, is one claim that is legitimately correct when it says it is the only way. So we decided to look for that with these five major religions, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism. Uh, Viswamitra is not a founder. I just put it there as an example of an author.
we will be going through now a little more rapidly because we need to complete this by tomorrow. So <laughs> you can take notes, like I said, and that's good. But if ever you kind of sit back and listen, that is also acceptable because uh, over there are, is a book that I have authored and that book contains everything that's on the screen. All the arguments that I say, all the uh, in pieces of information is in that book. Uh, retail is 22 bucks, but for this seminar, it'll be $15 each. Let's carry on with uh, the 10 questions that we said. Before we go to those 10 questions, there was something that I, something I looked at, unique factors. Now, each of these claims said, this is a unique factor. It's so unique that it'll really sway you into thinking the way I think. That's, they portrayed it that way. But when I looked at the other religions, they also had similar claims. So I wrote them down as so-called unique factors. Now that doesn't mean they're unimportant. They're just non-unique. All right? There are 12 of them. We'll lay them aside because if they are not unique, it won't help me find the only way. But these are the 12. A complete message, faith and trust, picture of a savior, God, incarnation, that means God becoming man. There's one supreme being. It is revelation and not man-made. Uh, the ideas in the religion are beyond logic and reason. Realization and experience are the essential keys. The goal is incredibly fantastic. The blessings are present even in this present life. It is universal, that is the religion. It's not just for the adherents of that religion. <laughs> Number 12. Presence of miracles. These 12 I had to lay aside. And then go on to the 10 questions. The first three questions are to the writings. Number one, what kind of writing are you? There are four types of ancient writings. Folklore, legend, myth, historical. Folklore. There's no attempt to state a real true story. The main intent is to be interesting and bring out a lesson or moral. So it's, it's, you can read these folk tales which say that they, you know, the trees were whispering and the sun was shining and all the birds and the beasts got together for a big committee meeting. They know it never happened. But they are stating it just to make a lesson on a moral. Now why did I pick this topic first? What type of literature are you? Because it's the credibility that's in question. If it is a folk tale, then the story itself you know is not true. Now, how do I know whether the message is true? I wouldn't know. If it is legendary or mythological, same question. Whereas if it is historical, that means if the person really wrote down a real story, then the chances are that what is attached to the story, meaning the lessons and the doctrines that are attached to the story, have that much higher a credibility. We will see that in just a moment. So first is a folk tale, second is a legend. It's probably based on a real or true story, but then changes crept in, exaggerations, embellishments, and the changes begin generations after the event. That's a key point for a legend. The changes begin generations after the event when eyewitnesses are no longer alive to challenge that change. There are 
legends that we already know about. One is Santa Claus. Long ago, there was somebody known as Saint Nicholas, and he did help young boys and girls. But after a little while, it, he helped so many, like hundreds, and then thousands. And then how did he visit all those thousands? He couldn't walk, so he had to have some form of conveyance, so he gave him a sled. But then a sled going on ice, well, it can't go around the world all that way, so it had to fly in the air, you know? And these changes came in. And then, of course, you had the reindeer also that could fly in the air. And then what's the use of having just a, you know, a mundane bunch of reindeer? Put one red nose on the first guy. <laughs> so we have Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer. The fact is there was a story long ago, but changes came in. And changes came in generations after the event. That's a key point. And the time period for a legend is usually centuries. I'll give you a real life example for those of you who are Americans here. How many of you will agree with me if I told you Abraham Lincoln was five foot four and 310 pounds? So I can't make a change on that, right? Why? Because his memory is so fresh. 150 years in historical terms is fresh. You can't easily make a legend. Myth is so far back in history that generally accepted as somebody's imagination. The story is probably not true. The characters are probably fictitious and usually involve the supernatural world. The time period is many, many centuries and even millennia or thousands of years. It doesn't mean that the mythological stories are false it, or wrong. It just means that the credibility you give it is that much less than the next one, which is the historical one. In the historical type of literature, the attempt is to state the story as it really was. There are no significant additions, no core changes over time. All ancient writings have changes. We can't escape that at all. The question is, have they been changed at some core points that will change the actual message? That has not taken place. And so the closer the writing to the event, the greater the credibility. Now with that, let's go and look at the writings themselves. Number one, Hinduism. The Rig Veda is the earliest text, the, Rig, the Vedic literature. The Rig and the Sama, Yajur and the Atharva Veda are the earliest, followed by an anthology, which is the Upanishads. Then the epic or a big story, which is the Ramayana. And finally, the, another epic or a big story known, known as the Mahabharata, in which is the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad God, Gita song, song of God, that is the kernel of Hindu thought today. Although the Rig Veda is the orthodox source. Now look at this statement here. Lord Krishna first spoke Bhagavad Gita to the sun god some hundreds of millions of years ago. Now that immediately tells me that I have no way of going to figure out whether that story was really what happened. And if I don't know whether the story was really correct in its details, then how will I know that the message attached to the story is the original one? It may be true, but the credibility is questioned right there. When it comes, so that's why in uh, Ultimate Encyclopedia of Mythology, it says these words, Krishna according to Hindu mythology is an avatar or an incarnate of Vishnu. So the Hindu literature from my country, so far back, 
generally accepted as mythological stories. When it comes to Buddhism, I've got four sentences and these four statements are in chronological order and history. Number one, the humanity of the Buddha is also expressed by a Theravada monk. A Theravada monk is one who lived at the same time as Gautama Buddha. And he said these words, was he, Buddha, not born at Lumbini? Did he not complete existence at Kusinara? In other words, wasn't he born like any one of you and me over here and then he died here? That's it. That was the earliest writing. Soon after the passing of the master, a change began to set in. Notice that. Now, the beginning, number three, at the beginning of the Christian era, now 500 years have gone by, the transcendental nature of the Buddha became more and more pronounced. And then in an important piece of Mahayana literature, this is the later form of Buddhism, now 700 to 1000 years have gone by, there's not much of the man left in the Buddha. He is now an exalted being who has lived for countless ages in the past and will continue to live forever. Uh, you can see the change in the writings themselves from an ordinary person who was born here and died here now to a person who, who was actually in existence way before and then way out and ahead. So the literature story of Gautama Buddha must be classified as a legend. There is some places out here, sir, if you want to. Judaism, there are 39 books and 20 different authors living at vastly different periods of history. Some writings appear mythological, others are accurately historical. It is very difficult to classify the whole of those 39 books into one. I left it unclassified. If any of you would like to try to classify it in some way, go ahead and try. And if you are successful, please let me know. But it is difficult, at least I found it difficult to classify. When it comes to Islam, the Quran was put together in writing by 652 CE, common era, same as AD. That's within 30 years of Muhammad's life. Only some change in the text are accepted by scholars. I'm being quite liberal here to the Muslim literature. Actually, in the third caliphate, under Uthman, Ali the fourth, who was going to become the fourth caliph, said that the Quran was corrupted. So Uthman immediately called for a committee, scholars, and said, we want it to be standardized. What is the authentic text? These scholars went around the countryside and picked out what they thought was authentic from their traditional writings known as Hadith and from the great traditional writing known as Ahadith and put together what we have today as the Quran and then, unfortunately or fortunately, they destroyed every other thing. So we have no idea really today on a scholarly level to find out whether the Quran we now have is actually what was written before because all the written texts are destroyed. But it was written within his lifetime. When it comes to Christianity, the earliest text is about 114 to 134 AD. That's the earliest manuscript copy. The original manuscripts were within 20 to 50 years of the life of Jesus. Which are the earliest writings of the New Testament? Is the writings of Paul. Paul came into the movement later than the apostles. And yet his writings are the earliest. And when you put the, uh, his stories and what he's writing to and from where he is writing to, some of the writings were within 10 to 15 years of the life of Jesus. 
In fact, they have found tombs in which they have uh, dated the coins that are next to those tombs less or before AD 41. And on the tombs are the inscriptions, Jesus ascended one. In other words, the story had already been formed within 10 years. There is no time to make a legend. There is no time to make a myth out of it. It is confined to one generation and there are no core changes. There are changes, but no core changes in this ancient manuscript, which today we call the New Testament. We can already say emphatically there's no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after about AD 80, and that's Sir William Albright, one of the greatest archeologists this world has ever known. Now what I did was to compare from that same period, writings that everybody acknowledges as historical. You can go to any department of history in any university and quote from these books and get your MAs and PhDs in history, Roman history, because these books are counted as historical writings. But look at the characteristics Caesar's Gallic Wars was written in 100 BC, but the earliest manuscript we have in our hands is dated 900 AD, and we don't know what happened for 1,000 years. Herodotus' history, we don't know what happened to the writing for 1,300 years. We don't know whether anybody added, deleted, changed. We have no idea, and yet we accept it as historical. Same with Tacitus' annals a period of 1,000 years, 1,000 years, one millennium. What could have happened? We, we don't know. And yet, there is nobody who will ever accept it if you doubt the historicity of these writings. Compare these numbers that we've given over here with the New Testament. Written about here, the earliest manuscript is this, and the gap is not even 20, 15 to 50 years, and that's it. There is no time here to form a legend. There is no time to form a myth. If you can swallow this and call it historical, if you can swallow 1,300 years and, and call Herodotus' history historical, how come you're choking on 20 years? It's not fair. And remember, we are all inquirers. So when we put it together, it is just simply not fair. The New Testament must be accepted as a historical piece of literature. The other form of credibility comes from the number of manuscripts backing that writing. If there is a small number of manuscripts, then it's possible for somebody to just slip in some changes in four or five of them and nobody knows. You have corrupted the text. You changed it at the same place in all the copies. But if there's a large number, spread out geographically, for instance, then it's difficult for somebody who wants to corrupt the text to go to all of them correct and change it at the same spot in each manuscript, and nobody knows it has changed. Are you with me? So the number of manuscripts will give you the credibility of the historicity. Caesar's Gaelic Wars is based on 10 manuscripts worldwide. Herodotus history, eight manuscripts. Tacitus annals, 20 manuscripts. The real champion of Greek literature is Homer's Iliad. 
the Homer's Iliad is based on 643 manuscripts. Is that impressive? Compared to 10, 8, and 20. Now, suppose I say that the New Testament is based on 664 manuscripts. Will you say, wow? Are you willing to say that? Okay. <laughs> the New Testament is based on 5,664 manuscripts. Wow. Yeah. 5,664 Greek manuscripts. If you add the Latin and the Armenian and the Arabic and all the rest together, the New Testament is based on 24,900 manuscripts. It has the shortest period from the event to the actual writing. It is backed by the largest number of manuscripts any ancient writing is backed on. In real terms, the New Testament is easily the best attested ancient writing in terms of the sheer number of documents, the time span between the events and the document, and the variety of documents available to sustain or contradict it. There is nothing in ancient manuscript evidence to match such textual availability and integrity. No other ancient book has any, anything like such early and plentiful testimony to its text, and no unbiased scholar would deny that the text that has come down to us is substantially sound. In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone among ancient prose writings. Not ancient religious writings. Ancient writings across the board. Whether it's the Mayans or the Sumerians or the Chaldeans or the English, or whether it's the Babylonians or the Greek or the Romans or the Chinese or the Indians, place them all together on the table. This piece of literature is the best attested ancient writing in the whole world. If you become skeptical of this, of the resultant text of the New Testament, you will have to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity for no document of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. Again, this is not a Christian information. This is simply historical information. We are dealing with something that anybody can look at and dig up and see. Don't let anybody fool you that the New Testament is mythological just because there are some stories there that you can't explain scientifically. That's fair. There is no feature of a mythological or legendary writing in the New Testament. The Quran and the New Testament are definitely historical in nature. The New Testament has very high credibility and integrity of text. Number two. Does the writing throw out a challenge to test it? In Hinduism, we have to accept it as it is, otherwise there is no point in trying to understand the Bhagavad Gita and its speaker, Lord Krishna. This is from the introduction to the Bhagavad Gita. In other words, here it is. Take it or throw it out. You can't test it. Buddhism, the genuine realization of the emptiness of the phenomenon world is a direct intuition of the highest truth. Absolute truth is unconditional, undeterminate, and beyond thought and word. So don't try to reason anything out there. Just take it, swallow it, 
and leave it, or if you don't want it, out it goes. The key is not to try to reason it out. The key here is why don't you experience it? That is what they are saying. Well, it's a good, it, it's something good, a, a fair challenge, but give me a reason why I should experience it. Because there's another one there saying, experience me also. If there was only one, I would say, okay, let's, let's get on with it. But if there are two or three saying the same thing, then you've got to give me a reason. Islam, it throws out a challenge. In the Quran in chapter 2 and in other chapters too, and chapter 10 and 11 also, produce one chapter comparable to it. Call upon your idols to assist you if what you say is true. But if you fail, as you are sure to fail. In other words, here's the Quran. Can anybody write something that is comparable to the Quran? In the other parts of the Quran, it says, can you produce a book comparable? Can you produce even one verse that is comparable to it? Wow, that is a challenge. And so I, in my search, I said, okay, let me take up that challenge and see if I can find some other writing or maybe produce something myself that is equal to that. But there were four snags that killed the whole attempt. What aspect to be equaled? Is it supposed to be the doctrine? The prose, the poetry, the philosophy, the truth, which aspect? Doesn't mention that. Number two, what will be the method of comparison? How will we say this is better, equal, or worse than the Quran? Point system, or gut feeling, or what? Who will be the judge? Some mullah in a masjid, a mosque, or maybe an Islamic committee in uh, Saudi Arabia, or maybe a neutral committee that we will choose from the United Nations, or who? It does not say who will be the judge. And when you do not describe or delineate the judge, by default, I become the judge. Yes, if you are doing the search, you will have to become the judge. Because it doesn't say who is going to be the judge. So what I did was become the judge. And I can honestly tell you that I have read other writings that will easily equal the Quran in its beauty. That is Khalil Gibran, Omar Khayyam, Rabindranath Tagore for my country, a Nobel laureate. Incidentally, he wrote in my language, Bengali. So when I read that boy, I'm swept <laughs> up there. My jaws drop open. It's so beautiful. Even Shakespeare. For that matter, in this Old Testament, Isaiah, the prose of Isaiah is beautiful. How can anybody say that it's not equal to the Quran? I couldn't. Fourth, in my library I have a um, translation of the Quran into English by N.J. Dawood. He's supposed to be the most, one of the most authentic translators. So I have the English translation of the Quran in my library. An orthodox Muslim will never accept that as the Quran. Because the Quran is the Quran only in the Arabic language. Because that is the language of divine communication. So if I must equal the Quran, I have to write it in Arabic. No, I have so many Muslim friends. They hardly know one sentence of literary Arabic. The Muslims themselves. So what of the rest of the world? I am definitely out of this challenge then. So the challenge has lost its universal characteristic. A vague challenge 
not telling me who will be the judge and leaving out leaving me out because I can't write in Arabic is not a true challenge a true challenge must be that which applies to anyone and everyone are you with me so there is a challenge but when I really went to take it up I could not Judeo-Christian, I put these Judeo-Judaic and Christian literature together because there is a challenge thrown out here. Present your case, says the Lord. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. In other words, here is this Judeo-Christian God writing it down in what is known as Judeo-Christian scriptures and said, look, I'm writing down something here. Can anybody else do it? And it's called predictive prophecy, not just prophecy. Predictive prophecy means that the events, the prediction and the fulfillment are separate events. And they are connected only because of the fulfillment. In other words, I am not predicting that the nation beside me is going to be destroyed. And then I pick up an army myself and go and destroy them. <laughs> that would be a prophecy. And it would be fulfilled, but it cannot be called predictive prophecy because I prophesied and I did myself. That's why predictive prophecy has to have two different components. The prediction and the fulfillment completely separate. <coughs> Are there any such in the Judeo-Christian scriptures? Let me give you one of them. Maybe two or three for now. Jeremiah in... 51 chapter 37 verses Babylon shall become a heap without an inhabitant he wrote this about 595 or 596 BC at that time Babylon was at its zenith it was the most powerful fortress in the world the walls were so broad that two chariots could run side by side around the whole city this height is about 20 feet the walls of Babylon would rise 200 feet and how do you if you can't break down the walls how do you win you lay siege just surround the city starve them out then they have to come out for food with their hands up and then you've got the city in your hand but Babylon would laugh at anybody wanting to lay siege because the most you can lay siege is maybe two or three years just paying your soldiers just to hang around just waiting for something to happen. Why would Babylon laugh? Because inside Babylon in their storehouses was enough provisions for every inhabitant of Babylon for a period of 20 years. So here are walls that are this broad and 200 feet high and inside there Food enough for 20 years. Who is going to win? And yet, he said, they, it will become a heap. And then very interestingly, he says, I will make her springs dry. Do you know how Babylon fell? When Cyrus the Medo-Persian came, they were crossing over the river Euphrates. Now, the river Euphrates is the one that supplied Babylon going from one end and coming out the other side of the city. And Cyrus's horse, according to tradition, died while crossing the river. He was so angry with the river that he called his generals and said, I want this river dry. And so his generals and soldiers dug 
canals and aqueducts that were paralleling the river Euphrates and finally drained the river out into those canals. And as soon as he drained the rivers out, Cyrus saw his way into the city on the dry riverbed. And Babylon fell in one night. How? I will make her springs dry. And today? Few words evoke as many images of ancient decadence, glory, and prophetic doom as does Babylon. And yet the actual place 50 miles south of Baghdad is flat, hot, what's this word here? Is it the same as this? 2,500 years. Nobody can dispute it. Your own eyes today can go and see that that prophecy is still true. You, it's not an opinion. It is not something kind of a theory. We see the writing there and we see the fulfillment. It is predictive prophecy at its sublime best. That there was a prophetic event and the event did take place and we are not waiting for somebody who had written it way down there. You can go and see it for yourself today. How about place of birth? Somebody wrote about 500 years before it occurred that somebody was going to be born in Bethlehem. Now he didn't even know whether, the Be whether Bethlehem would be in existence at that time. A hundred years later, whole villages and towns have gone. So how did he know Bethlehem would be there? The fact is, it was there. And the other fact is that the parents of this person who was supposed to be born in Bethlehem didn't live in Bethlehem, they lived in Nazareth. And the only reason they ever went to Bethlehem was some foreign king said, go back to your ancestral home because we want to take a census of all the whole nation. So go back. Look, 500 years, a couple goes for just two weeks. And it's exactly at the time when she's supposed to give birth. Look, it's not five or ten years, it's 500 years. And they go for exactly those two weeks, give birth to a baby, come back to Nazareth, and never go back to Bethlehem again. Amazing. What do you give when somebody is thirsty? Water, juice, milk, something? Who gives vinegar? 1,000 years before the event, there was a prophet who wrote down, somebody is one day going to say, I am thirsty. And instead of giving, giving him anything else, they are going to give him vinegar of all things on earth. And that's exactly what happened. He said, I thirst. And they filled a sponge with sour wine, which is the same as vinegar, and put it to his mouth. Nobody can controvert these things. They said when he would be sold like a slave, he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. They said his joints may be out of joint, but his bones will not be broken. You can't get more specific than that. His garment will be divided, but one of his garments will not be divided. It will be cast lots on. Amazing. Look, if I became a prophet, light and a halo around my head, yep. <laughs> it will shine a little bit. If I became a prophet, 
and I came to one of you. In your family, everybody has straight blonde hair. And I look at you and I tell you, when you give birth in, 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 in one year's time, you're going to have a baby boy with curly black hair. And at the age of four, he will read all of Shakespeare's works. At the age of 12, he will graduate from university with a professional degree. At the age of 20, he's going to represent his country in the butterfly stroke and win the Olympic gold medal. And at the age of 30, he would have gone into a career with astrophysics and win the Nobel Prize in astrophysics. Five prophecies. Tell me, what would you think if all five came true? Won't you be amazed at me? Just five. Not only will you be amazed, you'll follow me <laughs> to the ends of the earth to find out what my next prediction would be. Don't you think? Yeah, be practical. If I really made these predictions, if I made another five and they all came true, boy, you'd think that this guy fell down from heaven. <laughs> yeah, that's how we live. We are, we, we are built that way. Look, this Judeo-Christian scriptures, the scholars tell us, has 600 prophecies. 322 of them were related to one man called the Christ. 24 of them were fulfilled in one weekend. Some were written from 500 to 1,000 years earlier. There is a challenge that this scripture throws out. And it fulfills its own challenge like no other ancient literature. Number three, tell me one top feature. Islam, the language of the Quran, is definitely what they say a real good top feature. The beauty of it, the, when they listen to it, they feel enveloped in a divine dimension of sound. It can change lives. There was Umar al-Khattab, a contemporary of, Gaut of uh, Muhammad, who really got mad with Muhammad. Because the usual way they, they worshipped in the Arabian Peninsula was many goddesses. And here is this Muhammad saying that all these gods and these ones are not to be worshipped. There's only one, Allah. He thought it was heresy, Al-Khattab. And he felt his duty to remove the heresy once and for all. So he took his sword and said, I'm going to do it today. Muhammad should be out for the count. He's bringing heresy to this peninsula. I'm going to finish him today. On the way to Muhammad's house, somebody just told him, go back to your own house and see what's happening. He knew what that meant. So he ran back home and there in his own house, the local blacksmith is reading the Quran of, of anything else to his own sister. He was so mad. He kicked the door open and went and slammed her on her face, sending us sprawling and everybody ran. They left the Quran on the floor. Sister, you know, bleeding from her mouth. Then he, he felt a little bad for having done such a nasty thing. So he thought a little bit and then he saw the Quran there and when he picked it up it was turned to the 20th surah or 20th chapter and he read that and this is what he said. How fine and noble is the speech. 
he said wonderingly, and this Muslim was brought to his knees by the beauty of the Quran which reached through his passionate hatred and prejudice to an inner receptivity that he had not been aware of. He immediately took his sword, put it back in its seat, walked down the streets to Muhammad, knelt down before Muhammad and said, from now I'm a Muslim. No wow? Wow, thank you. Yes. In one hour, he read one chapter and it turned him from a murderer to an avowed Muslim. It's amazing. And in the Quran, the Muhammad is called the Ummi prophet, the unlettered prophet. He could neither read nor write. And that is why it is called the Quran. Do you know what the meaning of the word Quran is? The meaning of the word Quran is recitation or recitation. He could not read or write, so what he got from Angel Gabriel, he would come and recite. And the people would kind of quickly memorize what he's saying or write it down on a piece of paper or whatever they had, maybe rocks or whatever, and then later on brought together the Quran. But it came down to the Muslim world and to the world as a recitation. That's why it's called the Quran. So the language of the Quran is amazing, exquisitely beautiful, and possibly supernatural. Hinduism, it's very deep philosophy. National Geographic has this statement to make. Hindu sages gave to mankind one of the most sophisticated systems of philosophy ever devised. It's a blend of religion, ethics, civil codes, medicine, mathematics, astronomy, and other natural sciences. Let me give you just one example. Arguably, they gave us the concept of zero. How much is 10 zeros in a line? Zero. You put 10 zeros here and put a one here, what happens to that number? Zero is the smallest or zero or cipher or nothing and as well as it is the biggest number imaginable. Which is the starting point at a z on the zero? Which way is the writing going, this way or that way? You form Om when you say the word Om, which is the most sacred uh, reverberation. When you make your mouth in that, you make it into a circle, Om. So the zero, infinity, as well as zero, Om, its reverberations, which is everything. One-fourth of Om is what we see. Three-fourths is what we don't see at all, which is the ultimate Brahman of the Hindu religion. It's amazing that they have these types of philosophy also in there. And so we say Hindu philosophy Amazing, deep, and brilliant, and possibly supernatural. When it comes to Buddhism, there are three features. It's vast, detailed, and mysterious. The Pali canon, Pali is a language that was used in those days. Has not been used after that. After it became Sanskrit, but somehow this literature has the Pali language. Fills 45 volumes, the Chinese, 100 volumes of 1,000 pages closely printed, and the Tibetan has 325 volumes. So the Indian, Chinese, and Tibetan put together, Buddhist scripture has 470,000 pages. It is the largest body of, of literature in the world. Half of it has not even been translated yet from its original language. What about the detail? If you want to identify a Buddha, this is how you identify him. The Lord's body has 32 marks of a superman, and was adorned with the 80 subsidiary characteristics. He was endowed with the 18 special dharmas of a Buddha, 
mighty with the ten powers of a Tathagata and in possession of the four grounds of self-confidence. Can you see how detailed it is? The writing is detailed. The monks were subject to 250 rules known as Pratimoksha rules. And if you were a female monk who came in later on, then they'll added about 61 more rules for you. 311. This is a prayer that they're supposed to pray two times a day, a prayer for forgiveness. May I be freed at all times from the four states of war, the three scourges, the eight wrong circumstances, the five enemies, the four deficiencies, the five misfortunes, and quickly attain the path. And you can't say three scourges. You're supposed to say those scourges, not eight wrong circumstances, but mention them. Detail. Also, the bulk of this literature is couched in a deliberately mysterious language which would convey nothing to the average reader. Give you an example. The realization that undifferentiated emptiness is the sole absolute truth. Did you understand that? Therefore, nirvana is therefore that mental state in which one realizes that all things are really non-existent. Did you understand? No? Well, that's what it's supposed to do. You're not supposed to understand. <laughs> if you did understand, there's something wrong with what they wrote or with their whole approach to it. You're not supposed to understand. You're just supposed to accept it. And it's supposed to do something in your psyche and in your body. It's very mysterious. If you try to understand and try to use logic and reason, you get really caught. I got caught because I tried it. Because I looked at that and said, this mental state, is that also non-existent? <laughs> then how will I understand anything if my mental state is non-existent? <laughs> anyway, Buddhism is amazing, awesome, mysterious, and possibly supernatural. Again, the Judeo-Christian literature, the writing of the Bible. Now, there are many features there, but I've picked out one that people usually don't talk about. And that is the cross-referencing. There are 66 books, and there's a huge spectrum of authors, military generals, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, and the rest. But there is something known as attesting cross-reference. For example, between authors of the Old Testament. I, Daniel, understood by the books, the number of the years, specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. In other words, I, Daniel, I got my info from this source here. And this source also gave Jeremiah his info. He is attesting another writer. Between the writers of New Testament books, Peter writing about Paul, also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, has written to you. So Peter is saying, I've got wisdom from this source, and that wisdom gave Paul also his wisdom and his source. Between authors of the New and the Old Testament, for example, right here, Matthew says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. So Matthew says, I've got my info from that source called the Lord, and that same Lord spoke to Isaiah 600 years earlier. This attesting cross-referencing is absolutely unique in ancient literature. You don't find any attesting cross-references. So if we are going to take it face value as, a as one of the top features, then if we look at it, this Lord was the source throughout the writing of the Bible. That's a simple deduction from the referencing. And therefore, 
this source should have lived at least 1400 to 1500 years and that is humanly impossible because the Guinness Book of World Record now states that the most a man has lived is 120 years. So the source, if it lived that long, is a superhuman feature. Now we turn from the writings to the founders. What is the highest claim? That was my first question. What is the highest claim you make for yourself? Now, I was not interested in just getting information, all right? I was looking for something to latch my destiny to. So if you were a, a reporter and you went to a weightlifting championship and you got one of the fellows who was you know, warming up out there and said, hey, what, what do you think you'll do in this, in this competition? And he says, well, I am about, uh, I'll come about maybe 95th or 96th. And you say, thank you. And then you go to the next guy and says, what about you? What would you do in this championship? And he stops his exercising, puts his big fat dumbbells down and says, I am world champion. Nobody will defeat me. I'm going to see to that. I'll go back with a gold medal. Tell me, if you're a reporter, who will go looking after? This guy who said he's 95th or 96th, or this guy who said he's champion? Yeah. You're not going to look for a champion in the quiet. He must be out there to tell me that you're a champion. Then I'll follow you. And don't come to the backyard in my house and say, come here, let me tell you a little secret. It's between you and me. Now, don't tell anybody else. Promise? Okay, promise. I am world champion. How will that sound? Hey, if you are world champion, don't tell me over the fence in my backyard. You go out in the front of the TV cameras and stand there and tell me that you're the world champion. So everybody will know they've followed you, have checked you out. That's what I mean. If you are a champion, then I'll follow you. So tell me, what is the highest claim you make for yourself? Hinduism... Viswamitra is not a founder. There are many writers and authors. I just mentioned one name. The highest claim they made for themselves is a sage. A sage is a very revered individual in society, known for his you know, poise, ability to counsel, uh, good personality, and very deep piety, intelligent. That's a sage. Buddhism, Gautama Buddha said he was the enlightened one. One night, he was enlightened under a ficus tree. Islam, Muhammad said he was a seal of the prophets. The tradition of Islam says that Allah sent down 124,000 prophets, beginning with Adam. 25 of them are mentioned in the Quran. There was Adam and Abraham and Noah and the patriarchs and there was Jesus and everyone was in line with them. But Muhammad was the seal the final one, you cannot controvert his words. Judaism, Moses was the prophet and the lawgiver. When he came to this man, he said he was the son of God. Now look, we are inquirers. We're not Hindus, Muslims, Christians, nothing. We're just people on the street inquiring. If you do that and if you join me, really look, you might, you might come in the footstep that I went through because I, when I became an inquirer and looked at that and I said, wait a minute, 
the line must be drawn here. <laughs> These guys are all human. Can you see that? And this person says he is God. So the first response I had with that was, hey, Jesus, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can you tone yourself down a little bit so I can understand? I can understand a prophet. I can understand a message. I don't understand God. You dress like me. You eat like me. You struggle to get your next paycheck just like me. What makes you think you are the son of God? Give me a break. Yeah. Who, who, who can look at him and say he's the son of God? Halo around his head? Of course he didn't have any. Nothing there to say that he's the son of God. But it is written in the best attested historical piece of literature in the world. So here I am stuck. Can't believe, can't throw it out. What do you do? Well, I did what I could. Check out to see what kind of people call themselves God. And did he fit into any of those kinds of people? For example, mad or deluded people call themselves God. It's called delusions of grandeur. That's the technical term. You see this little girl playing with dolls and who are you? I'm the Queen of England. <laughs> delusions of grandeur. Was he a liar or an imposter? And if he's a liar, then he'll have to be a real pathological, incorrigible liar. Egomaniac, megalomaniac, or truly God. Did he fit into any of those? Was he mad? What did some of the great thinkers say? And I'm going to quote here just now. Somebody usually don't quote in religion. And I'm trying sometimes to go away from the usual religious quotes. This person was a world emperor. Napoleon Bonaparte. After he had finished conquering the then known world, he was in exile when people came to him and said, would you think in your spare time you would give a little thought to a little lowly peasant who lived long ago, his name is Jesus of Nazareth? He said, why should I? That bitty little peasant, I'm world emperor. Why should I think about that? No, I said, just give it a thought. He said, okay. Read about him. Think about what he said. He did that. This is what he said. Everything in Christ astonishes me. The nearer I approach, the more carefully I examine everything is above me. Everything remains grand, of a grandeur which overpowers. Neither history, nor humanity, nor the ages, nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or even to explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. Wow. Bernard Ram said these words about Jesus' words. They are read more, quoted more, loved more, believed more, translated more because they are the greatest words ever spoken. And where is their greatness? It lies in the pure, lucid spirituality and dealing clearly, definitively, and authoritatively with the greatest problem that throbbed in the human breast. I have not found one serious scholar ever charging Jesus with madness. So that's out. Imposter? Not likely. Why? Because the Sanhedrin trial. Incidentally, here's the same question that we are asking. 2,000 years later, are you really the son of God? Jesus was a thoroughbred Jew. He knew the Torah from the first word of Genesis to the last word of Deuteronomy. And he knew that if he ever said yes to that sentence, he would be 
charged with blasphemy and go to his death. Now, if you are charged, going to be charged that way, you know it'll be the death sentence. If you knew some piece of information that will clear you, will you not bring it to the judge? Yeah, escape the death sentence. Come on, bring some truth inside there and clear me. Suppose you knew that you did it and you deserved it. You were going to the gallows. And your attorney came to you and said, look, I have formed a way of saving you from the gallows. Just go and tell them these two lies under oath. Leave the rest to me. I'll acquit you. What do you think you would do? Tempted? Yeah? If you are facing the gallows, if you are in your right mind, you will tell the truth to escape the death sentence. You will even tell a lie to escape the death sentence. But if you are in your right mind, nobody has known to cling to a falsehood to bring on the death sentence. I can't go home and tell my family, look, I know I didn't murder, but let me go and tell the judge I really did it and then just have my neck cut off. How much, what sense would it make? Nobody clings to a lie. This man answered in the affirmative and went to his death. There is no greater evidence that he in his own heart believed completely and totally that he was the son of God. A liar is a person who knows what is the truth and says something else. So we could not classify him as a liar. No, I couldn't. Egomaniac? Well, well, there are people who call themselves God because of their status, right? The pharaohs of Egypt, the Caesars of Rome, they mentioned to their subject that they were gods and if you didn't call them God, well, your neck was off. Why did they do that, you know? Why was it on pain of punishment? Because they knew they were not gods. At any rate, they made those statements and they called themselves gods. But you obey their orders. How about this man? I come from the East, India. We have a tradition there. When you walk to your relative's house, you know, across the uh, dusty roads and go to the next village, the first thing they do is bring a pot of water and wash your feet. That's a beautiful way of welcoming and also it's very refreshing if ever you've done it. After walking a long time with just sandals or bare feet, to have your feet washed is a very refreshing experience. But who is supposed to wash the feet? The lower ones in the household. And if you had a servant, then the servant would wash. If you had a big household, many servants, then the servant who cooks in your kitchen won't go out to wash. The person who works in the yard with the manure and digging and dirt, that person goes and washes the feet. So it's the lower rungs. One day this man Jesus and his disciples went to a certain home for a meal, having walked a distance, and when they sat there, nobody to wash the feet. Everyone looked at each other, who's going to do that job? That's a servant's job. He gets up, takes his outer garment off, and wraps his waist with a towel and bends down and washes the dirty feet of his disciples. No egomaniac in history has ever done that. So he washed that like a common servant. 
Can I call him an egomaniac then? Because they sit on, on thrones and have you wash and <laughs> wipe their shoes. They don't go down and do that. So could he be truly God? I don't know, I'm struggling. But he doesn't fit into any of the others. He's not mad, he's not a liar, he's not an egomaniac. <laughs> what do I do? Well, at least keep it there as a possibility. Some people say we'll give him the best that we can possibly give. Let's call him a great moral teacher, not God. But C.S. Lewis, a professor of literature in Cambridge University, a one-time atheist, he thought the same thing, but he, when he thought it through, this is what he said. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You must say good. Amen is Christian. Wow, that's better. It's clear. If somebody says he is God, either describe him as a lunatic or a liar or an egomaniac or call him God. Why is the Christian world weak today? Very few believe he was God. We say he is God. We don't believe. It has not gripped us. This person who walked the dusty paths of Palestine was God the Almighty. No. That's too much of a difference. And so we land somewhere in between and we neither disbelieve it nor we believe it. And so we walk our lives because if he is God, huh. you know there was a, a convict in a in an English prison and the chaplain would go every day and talk to him about the claims of Jesus and one day this convict turned to him and said do you really believe all this thing you're talking to me about Jesus and this chaplain was taken aback and but he looked at him and said mm. and so this convict looked him in the eye and he said if if I were you and if I believed what you say, I would be willing today to crawl across England on broken glass to tell the people about it. The problem is we don't believe. It's a syndrome we have. We say the right things. It's a Sabbath school syndrome, you know, I call it. <laughs> you know exactly what to say. You tell these little kids, hey, who's the hero? This is Sabbath school, okay, in the Sabbath school class. Who's your hero? I know, Jesus. <laughs> On the playground, who's your hero? Spider-Man. <laughs> you tell me who his real hero is. Yeah? Sometimes we do the same thing. Some people said he could have been honestly mistaken. Yes? Oh, thank you for telling me. Let's just finish this one in one minute and then go. 
They say that he was honestly mistaken. Hey, that's, that's a difficult one. Any of you ladies honestly mistaken whether you're the Queen of England? <laughs> Any of you guys mistaken that the, that, the, that the car you drove in was actually a spaceship? <laughs> no, you can't be honestly mistaken about that. You can't be honestly mistaken about where you left the pointer or somebody's face in a crowd. But you can't be honestly mistaken about being God. Is such an intellect clear the sky, bracing as the mountain air, sharp and penetrating as so thoroughly healthy and vigorous, always ready and always helpless, liable to such a radical and most serious delusion concerning his own character and mission? No way. He knew what he was, he said what he was, and it is for us to either take it or simply throw it out. Look, friend, if he is not God, kick him out. Don't keep him there like an idol. Either you fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, or toss him out. Hot or cold, not lukewarm. Let's take a break. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.